0: When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 53 of our study, Exodus, God's great rescue. And we spent some time in our last episode talking about um, how God was going to be with them. Uh, We talked about the angel, or did we talk about the angel of the Lord? Um, uh, The angel of Yahweh or the angel of God, this, this person that leads them through this whole process, he's mentioned, we've already seen him before uh, in Genesis and earlier in Exodus, but the, the God somehow the angel of God is with, is with the Israelites. um, And that he's going to help them conquer the land that they're going to conquer. And um, now we're going to uh, we're going to read a little bit further. This kind of is interesting, uh, Exodus 23 beginning of verse 27. "I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So God talks about how here he's going to let them get into the promised land. He's going to send this hornet ahead to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites. But he doesn't want to drive everybody out because the animals would come in. And the animals would take over the land. It would be too hard for them because they've been. this is a land that's been occupied. So the animals are at bay. Um, now, we don't really think about this because we don't have a problem with animals. We, uh, in modern day society, we have ways to control animals. Like, I go hiking into the desert all the time. I'm not worried about animals killing me because there's very, very few of them. But if there were a lot of animals... That, Then they would be. uh, There's a potential that they could kill me, but I, I don't worry about them. Um, But in the promised land, apparently it's like weeds, right? If you don't spray for weeds, or if you don't walk on the ground, pretty soon the weeds will take over, and it's just lots of weeds. Well, the same thing's true with people. If people are occupying the land, then the animals go away, and they find some other place to get their food. But as soon as you unoccupy the land, the animals come back, and then it's a lot harder, apparently, for them to, to uh, these people, to these Israelites, to conquer the land. So God's looking out for them even then. Um, And then uh, we'll continue reading verse 31. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. So God is pretty clear here, and this is, this is one of the main things that we will see throughout the whole entire narrative of the old Testament that he's like, this is your land. We're going to drive them out, but don't make covenant with their gods. In other words, remain true to me. I am the God who watching over you. So may it remain true to me. Don't let them live in their lands because they're, uh, they will cause you to sin against me. In other words, don't pollute the don't don't worship their gods don't let your worship of me get polluted by the people that are in the land uh you, because they will they will eventually turn you and you will not be able to worship me purely and i want you to worship me purely god's all about this worship me uh remain true to me remain faithful to me remain faithful to me i'm going to remain faithful to you we have this covenant and the covenant is, I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to give you a nation. Um, so that's that's where this whole thing, you know, we've already seen this before, but but God's now giving a little bit more detail is how they're going to get into the promised land. So where is the promised land? Because it says, I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates River. So um, I'm going to put up a map for those of you who can see of what this looks like. Um, so we know where the Mediterranean is. It's to the north of Israel. It's that sea, that wonderful sea, that wonderful warm sea that um, is north. Uh, the Mediterranean. Then the Red Sea separates Egypt from the Sinai Peninsula. Then the desert is probably the Sinai Peninsula and everything south of Israel. Um, and then all the way to the Euphrates River. So... Remember the Tigris and the Euphrates. Between that is where modern-day Baghdad is, somewhere in there, and that's called the cradle of civilization. All of, all of life, Adam and Eve kind of started there, <laughs> uh, and then they kind of occupied the land, and then they went over to Egypt, and now they're back, and God's going to give them this land. Now, one of the interesting things about this whole thing is that, um, if if uh, If I own a car, the state of Arizona gives me a title to that car, and I hold that title, and it's all notarized and documented and all that sort of thing. And because I hold that title, that car is mine. It's my car. And in the same way, because the Israelites have a written language, they and Moses right, is composing the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because, because they have this document about how they have a covenant with God and that this is their promised land, and nobody else really does have that document. This becomes almost like the title to the land dating back thousands of years ago. So, I know there's a, co- a lot of conflict going on in the Middle East today about who owns that land. And one of the ways that you could solve that conflict would be to say, okay, which, who has the oldest title, right? If you buy a house, you know, they give you a title to the house and they go back and they search. Are there any other titles that people claiming ownership of this land? And no, there isn't. Okay, then I can give this land. I'll do an assurance. I'll do a title insurance to make sure that this land, this house belongs to this person. And, one, and so they go back and they search all the title histories and they do that. And the same thing with cars. You get the title to the car. Well, because of this, they get the title to the land. This is why the people of Israel believe that this is their land. It's because it was titled to them from God back from the Pentateuch. Now, in the diaspora and very many diasporas, the Israelites went out into different areas. They moved out of the promised land. Other people came in, uh, and then they came in and fought wars, and uh, now, they, now they're now they still trying to protect the land that they believe that, well, they know that God gave them. Um, the question uh, is, is that covenant still applicable, or when Jesus, the Messiah, came, did that violate the covenant? Because now, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of that title. Now that presents an interesting thing to think about. Because if you're Israelite, you don't believe in Jesus. And so you say, no, this land is mine, uh, all the way back from from God. But if if the Israelites believed in the promise from the Messiah, then they wouldn't necessarily hold claim to the land anymore. Because although God doesn't deny um, like every every promise that God fulfills in the in the Old Testament, even if it's fulfilled in Jesus, he still he still keeps those promises going. So that land is still belonging to Israel. I think that land belongs still to Israel. Um, although um, the the whole idea of we living of us living in a world economy and who gets land and who doesn't get land and all that sort of thing is settled by. Courts and wars and all those sort of things. But the whole purpose of Israel was to get to the point where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The whole reason why God created this nation called Abraham, brought them into Egypt, brought them out of Egypt, and now they're going to wander for a number of years and conquer the land and create a people. And all of that, all of that happens so that Jesus can be born in Bethlehem. Once Jesus is born, the temple is torn, the curtain in the temple is torn in two, the temple actually is destroyed. Um, and the whole lineage from Abraham takes this shift into Jesus, which is where we enter the picture. All right, so um, let's just keep reading verse chapter 24 verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, And 70 of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So Moses has said, okay, you can take four guys, right? These Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, uh, and Moses, and and the 70 elders of of Israel. You worship at a distance, but Moses now comes up, to the mountain, and and I'm going to have a special time with Moses. So uh, verse 3, when Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. And then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. So now we see that Moses is uh, able to write. Moses writes all these things down. and He tells the people, and, uh, and they said, kind of interesting, that we will, we will in one voice, they responded with one voice, we will do what God has said. We will be united tribe, united under Yahweh, united to be able to fulfill the laws or to try to keep the laws that God has told us. We're willing to do that. So we'll remain his people. We keep reading. He, Moses, got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, And set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offering to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it into bowls; The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. And they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. So, now we have this altar that Moses built, got the stones to the 12 tribes, kills a bull, throws blood on the altar. Uh, and people said, we will follow God's law that we, we will we will follow God's law. And there's blood on the altar kind of a, as a, mm, a symbol that there's that, that we're going to follow God's law. Uh, And then God, then Moses reads the book of the covenant. Then they said, well, we'll do everything that God obeys, that God tells us we will obey. All right. Uh, We'll keep reading in verse eight. Then Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant. Um, This is... um, Oftentimes you'll see this in Holy Communion. It's it's a reminder that there's this covenantal relationship with the people in God. Moses actually took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. That's just, I know that's not something we do today. Uh, that's probably not um, PETA, uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or ASCPA or some of these other organizations would not be happy if we killed a bull and sprinkled the blood on the people, But this is now thousands of years ago. Moses was able to do this. And this is the blood of the covenant. And so it's a reminder to every person with this blood dripping down their face that they are in a covenantal relationship with God, which is kind of interesting. So when we go to Holy Communion, one of the things that happens to us in Holy Communion is that we realize that we are in a covenantal relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright as the sky. But God did not raise His hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and they drank. Now this is interesting. So when they get up to the mountain, these people and seventy elders. They see God. Remember, the angel of God going before you. And so now they kind of see him. They saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. So they're seeing something and they see God and they see this beautiful pavement uh, that's blue. And somehow they see God and they see the pavement. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Um, So God, even though they kind of catch a glimpse of God and they see him, uh, God does not raise his hand against them. So apparently it was okay for them to see from a distance God. Um, Verse 12, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So apparently Moses thinks he's going to be up on the mountain for a while. So he takes his aide, Joshua, his aide de camp, his right hand man, his number one on Star Trek. Uh, and they're going to go up and they're going to see God. And the remaining, her and Aaron, are to stay down at the base of the mountain. And while they're there, uh, the elders and Aaron and her are supposed to settle any disputes that are going to happen. So Moses must think he's going to be gone for a while. Verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses is up there with uh, uh, his aide de camp and um, Joshua and The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and for six days the cloud covered the mountain. But then on the seventh day, it looked like a consuming fire. So not exactly sure what that is, if it was actually fire or if it was just the way that the clouds and the moon and the stars and the sun and all that were bouncing around each other, that it just looked like this consuming fire. And then Moses goes into that cloud and goes up on the mountain into the cloud and he stays there for 40 days and 40 nights. Just really cool. So that's kind of the end of this portion of the story. Um, Moses goes up there for 40 days, 40 nights. Um, Now, God is now going to tell um, Moses certain things that he wants Moses to do. And um, these are kind of instructions about um, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the lampstand and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, this, th- th- this is interesting because, um, well, we'll get into it and then I'll tell you why I think it's interesting. We'll, we'll start reading of chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Just pause right there. This is not, this is not a demand of a tithe. This is an offering, and offerings are just based upon the heart to give. When we uh, receive tithes and offerings at our congregation, the tithe is anything that would be like the tithe, the Old Testament tithe, which uh, is ten percent. That's what tithe means. The offering is anything over and above that tithe. So, if you give, um, say, fifteen percent of your income, ten percent of that would be the tithe, and the other five percent would be an offering. Um, if you give your time, typically that's considered an offering. Um, if you give of of any you know anything that you have, you know you can think of it about tithes and offerings. Tithes are. Tithes are the Old Testament to make, you know, to cover you, to make sure that you're not gaming the system and that you're loving other people uh, and that you're following God's law. That's the tithe. And then the offering is anything over than that. And it's from the heart. So uh, and if you've ever met anybody that gives over 10 percent, of which I've met many, um, that that, uh, you know, that their heart, there is absolutely no question that their heart is in the right place. Absolutely no question, because um, because it comes from the heart. Nobody would give over and above an abundance over the tithe unless their heart was in such a place where they felt God's overwhelming love and compassion and joy that they wanted to give more. Um, and, and if you talk to these people, they they wouldn't change it for the world. They they just love so much giving that that's that's what they do. Um. All right, so uh, offerings whose heart prompts them to give. Let's continue reading in verse 3. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and other types of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the atoning oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breast piece. So, um, we haven't seen the ephod yet, but it's, a. Uh, oh, uh, the ephod is a, like, it's a, like a breastplate that gets put on Moses or the priest and it's got all these jewels and, and things on it. It's the ephod. And, um, Ram skins. So basically these are the things that people would have in their possession. Gold, silver, bronze, yarn, goat hair, ram skin. Remember when they, when they killed a lamb or a ram or any animal, they did not let anything go to waste. They kept all of it for every single purpose that you can possibly imagine. They, they reused everything. Um, So these are things that they would have had. And then Moses goes through the crowd and he says, God has asked me to see if there's any offering from your heart that you would like to give back to God. And I'm sure there were very, very many people who said, yes, I'll give this, I'll give this, I'll give this. And so so Moses is collecting or will collect all these things. Verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God is going to now tell them the pattern of all the things that he wants them to build. Um, and the, the first thing he tells them, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. And um, I think we'll not get into the Ark of the Covenant just yet because... I want to spend, we might spend a whole bit of time looking at the Ark of the Covenant and where it resides in some government headquarters in the CIA after Indiana Jones rescued it from the Nazis. Um, or maybe it's in the Elephantine Church on, on the banks of the Nile in Ethiopia, uh, which is they believe that in the foundation of their church is the Ark of the Covenant being protected by God. And they don't let anybody excavate or take pictures underneath that church. And that very well may be where the Ark of the Covenant is, or maybe it's maybe it's somewhere else. Who knows where the Ark of the Covenant is? Um, but we're going to talk about that the next time we get together, uh, and we're going to talk about other features, and then and then we'll talk about the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle is this moving sanctuary of God that goes with them. And, um, you know, pillar of fire by day, cloud by night, this whole tabernacle and what it looks like. And we'll talk about modern day representations of the tabernacle and uh, and how you can actually go to places and see that. And that's kind of fun, too. Uh, but it all starts with the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so we'll... I think we'll end it there and then we'll spend uh, our next episode just talking about the Ark of the Covenant because that that is one of those fascinating things for me. All right, so um, yeah, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, gracious God, thank you for being with Israel and bringing them safely to the promised land, giving them your law, giving them Moses, giving them instructions on the Ark of the Covenant, but more importantly, giving them you and your protection. Watch over us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.